0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest installment of For What It's Worth podcast. I think we're up to episode 39, and I have a really good episode this week, I hope. But before we begin, I have to uh, make an admission, and this is painful to me. It's not uh, something I want to do, but I think in all, all fairness, I have to do it to keep everything on even par here and to let people know who I am and when I make a mistake or I'm embarrassed about something. Or Something horrible happened. I at least get it out in the open because that's the only thing you can do and what I'm about to tell you is painful and I do not want to admit this but uh, we have to so uh, my father was about 40 pounds overweight his whole life pretty chronically overweight and also had a horrible physique. Like, he was not a chiseled god like me. He was a just a an amalgam of parts and places that shouldn't have been there. It was just uh, like a train wreck. And what I need to admit is that my father also wore a Speedo at the beach. And just think about that for a second. Let me just let that settle in. I told you I was a little embarrassed about this, but I needed to get it out on the table. 40 pounds overweight, odd physique, Oh, he also had a huge scar. Like he had a, the biggest scar I've ever seen on anyone that was still living, my father had. So that's that combination of three things the weight, the body type, the scar. And then you throw on top of this a Speedo. And I remember as a small human being, I mean, before I could walk or talk, all I knew was that I was alive and that there were these things, these creatures and beings around me that were, at the time, I didn't know, but there were other human beings, namely my family. I could sense that the Speedo was wrong, even back then, but it gets worse because my father, in addition to the Speedo, would wear topsiders, right, with no socks, like deck shoes, uh, and on top of that, he was prone to wearing like a terry cloth long sleeve jacket unzipped. Okay, just let that sink in for a second about how horrendous that is. I'm not proud of it. I don't get to choose my parents. I don't get to choose his fashion. I don't know where the Speedo thing came from. No one else in the family would even look at one, let alone wear one in public. Or transit from someplace like a beach to a hotel, and and navigate the lobby of a hotel in a speedo with topsiders and a terry cloth unzipped jacket. Okay, so I'm sure that some of you are running for the exits right now, and I totally get that. So I just wanted to get that off my chest because it eventually it will come out. Eventually, everybody's skeletons come out. I figured it'd be better to head it off at the pass. Okay, it's Friday afternoon here in New Mexico. Everything was going relatively well this week. Everything. Except for something that just happened, and I heard my wife talking on the phone, and I heard silver box, and I thought, oh, no. So I have been sending out AG23s in packaging, 12 by 9 by 3 packaging, which has a zine inside and a note from me and a sticker, and it goes out, and I've been sending out dozens of these things. Before I did this, We went to the post office with the materials and the packaging, showed the postal people, had them weigh it, had them measure it, and said, is this okay for media mail? Yes. Everything is fine. Great. I sent out the first 10 to the contributors. Those have been arriving, no problem. And now all of a sudden, all of the other packages have been being returned. This is, again, after going to the post office and after showing them and after measuring and weighing and saying, this is what I want to do. Is this okay? What do I pay? Yes, 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 yes. And then no. And now they're returning all the packages. So I am going to have to resend all these, somehow try to get a a refund from the post office, which... If you're not from America, you do not know how screwed up the American postal system is. It is a miracle that it works at all. Even though I love the postal service and I use them all the time, I love sending letters, it always complicates. It never seems to quite work, and then the prices just keep going up and up and up and up and up. So I just took a monumental step backwards in sending out AG23s to my to my database And it's a real pain in the ass because now I have to redo all this. And I did some investigating because when my wife said, you're never going to believe what happened, they're sending those things back. I went back onto the postal situation, the situation, not the situation, the site, and I was looking at alternatives. I'm like, well, if they're not going to let me do media mail now after saying I could, what are the choices? And so I looked at ground parcel and that was like eight bucks a package instead of 333. I remember what I was, I was paying for each one of these was 333. There's an alternative that's 321 so what they're going to end up doing is losing money because now I'm using a service that's going to be even cheaper. It makes no sense at all, and if I had not gone in and shown them and everything, I, I would say, okay, my bad. But we did. We purposely did because I know that if you cert- have, you can only send certain things media mail, uh, AG23, a zine, yeah, media. That's why I took it in there and they rejected it. So and now they're rejecting it for God knows what reasons. Maybe the guy behind the counter didn't talk to someone else. I don't know if they're rejecting all of them or some of them. My wife put some of them in a box. Others she handed to a person. And the time she handed to the person, they said no problem and they were off. But who knows? All I know is, is that it's really frustrating. I'll never get a refund, and I have to start over. But there's a lot of other worse things happening in life, so I'm not going to complain too much. It's just a bit frustrating because I am so effing busy right now. Okay, let's talk about um, a couple of things, and then uh, we're going to do our hero. We're going to do who's this for, and then we're going to have a question of the week. But I need to say one thing before we go any further, and that is all we had to do was wear a mask that's it all we had to do in the united states was wear a mask we had a roadmap. map the rest of the world asia first then on to europe all we had to do was wear a mask that was it and somehow america turned this into a political story instead of a health story and are we in massive massive trouble and here's the crazy part is that even people who are intelligent, typically logical, uh, typically well-informed people have all begun? Not not all, but have many have begun to form conspiracy theories or their own narrative in regards to the coronavirus. I spoke to someone the other day. Literally, it was Monday afternoon in Texas, and they said to me, "We're fine. It's no big deal. The numbers are way down. The hospitals are fine." everything is chill everything is fine and as i'm talking to them i get a text message from someone else in texas in the county that the person that i'm talking to on the phone lives in and it says this county had the highest single infection rate and the highest death rate including four people between 20 and 30 and this person on the phone's like everything's fine everything's totally fine and what it is is, it's really a matter of inconvenience to people now. It's not a health issue anymore. It's all about, well, I don't want to live. I don't want to live by the virus rules. So I will invent a narrative that I can live my life by that makes me feel good, that has nothing to do with math, science, truth, fact, or really the epidemic in any way, shape, or form. And I'll just keep doing this. And oh, by the way, the person on the phone with me was tested positive already. So uh, it, the lunacy involved in this story is so frustrating. Because all these people that are racing to open up, that don't want to wear masks, to do all this, that are talking about the economy, they don't seem to grasp the fact that we're, we're ruining the economy as we speak. If we had worn masks and got it under control, we would have had a shot at economic recovery. Now we're not even at the bottom. We're not even remotely close to rock bottom with, epi- with what's going to happen with the economy because we just guaranteed ourselves another year of the virus. It's just astounding to me. I'm a, I'm a little bit embarrassed uh, to be associated with the country right now, because we have our pants down, and the rest of the world, for those of you who looked back at the U.S. and said, well, you guys are the land of everything is perfect and shiny streets, there's amazing stuff about the U.S. We are an amazing country, but holy cow, I, I could not have painted a picture of worse <clears throat> handling of this situation. I knew it was going to be bad, I just, and it was bad, but then you would think, okay, this is really going off the rails. We're going to make a correction and come back. And we didn't. We've actually gone. We've we've hit the, the throttle on the train. We can see that the bridge is out. And we're like, I think I can jump that. I saw Dukes of Hazard. I think if I hit this at an angle uh, in a locomotive, I know locomotive is kind of heavy. I think I can still make it and then land on the tracks. I, it's doable. That's what the government's doing right now. They're like, speed up, speed up. You'll make that. Okay. Who is this podcast for? For those of you who don't know, I'm your host, Dan Milner, uh, the direct message, uh, the original direct message, and I am doing this podcast for no reason. Not a single person on the planet asked me to do this podcast, and I'm doing it anyway because I like it. The only reason I'm doing this is I like recording audio. I record little weird things all the time, and this is a little weird thing that I'm doing. Uh, But this podcast is really for anyone who's ever used martial arts on a family member. And for those of you who don't know about martial arts, let me give you the 411. So as a kid, I was involved in martial arts from about fifth grade through like middle of high school. I loved it. Bruce Lee was my hero. Chuck Norris was like a secondary hero, but I was happy when Bruce Lee killed him in Return of the Dragon. I was like, look, you're a hick. You're going to die. Bruce Lee's going to chop you into pieces. And he did. And I was happy. And I watched that film 10,000 times. I even watched it, I think, in Italian once because we would go to the video store and it was back in the day where videos came in beta and VHS, and there were like 12 total. You walked in, you saw the same people, the same lonely, depressed people, and you'd be like, I want Bruce Lee, Return of the Dragon. and They'd be like, well, we only have it in beta Italian. And would be like, great, because I just want to see him kill Chuck Norris. Martial arts, if you've ever used martial arts on a family member, you're going to love this podcast. Because, you know, we all hear about martial arts. Oh, it's about... Uh, it's about being calm. It's about being peaceful. It's about being one with all living creatures. But at some point in martial arts, you're like, I want to test this out on someone. And so you don't want to do it to your friends because you might get in trouble. You might get sued. You can't do it at school. They're going to brand you a lethal weapon, and then you're going to be in a cage all day. So you're, you know, you're, it, it happens like a wildebeest crossing the river in Africa, right? You're, you're the crocodile. And yeah, you know, the one wildebeest passed by could be your mom, right? And your mom gets too close to you. She gets inside your personal space, and you're like, maybe a thigh kick. Maybe, maybe a, a wheel kick to the head. And then you're like, no, 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 I can't do that. It's my mom. But then your sister or brother gets inside the, inside the uh, exclusionary zone, and you're like, you're fair game. And it's like the crocodile attacking the wildebeest. It's just a one-sided whack. It's something. It's a, it's a quick... Maybe a shot to the knee. It could be a roundhouse to the, you know, spinning wheel kick to the head. I don't know. You want to try it out. If you've ever done that, you're going to love this podcast. Our hero of the week is Douglas Kirkland. Canadian. Yeah, of course, because they're better than us. They're friendlier. They're nicer. Canada is the perfect blend of Europe and, and, and North America, right? It's the perfect blend. They have this thing in Canada called Common Sense. We, haven't, we don't have it yet here. I think we're supposed to get it. It's coming like fiber optic cable, but we're still behind. You can go to the Google site and type in your address and it says, no, you're screwed. You're not going to get it for another 10 years. It's called common sense. We don't have it. They do. And when you go up there and you see it, you're like, whoa, what is that? And they're like, oh, it's common sense, like farm to table. They go, yeah, how else would you do it? And we're and you go, Well, we love factory farms, and then we love to like coat things in non-nutritional cereal varnish. And they're like, hmm, that's an interesting technique. So Canadians are better. Douglas Kirkland is a 80-something-year-old photographer based out of Los Angeles. I just mentioned him in a YouTube film this week. He's one of the nicest, most positive people I've ever met in photography, and he has one of the most incredible archives in the history of the medium. He continues to shoot like a maniac. Uh, Very, very interesting, cool guy. Canadian. He's our hero of the week. All right, question of the week before we get to our points. The question of the week is, if you found a bag of drug money and you could either turn it in or keep it, the question I have is, what would you buy first? And for me, I would buy probably gold wheels for my car for my van i would replace the tires i would get more of an aggressive tire we are talking tires here in a minute by the way but i would probably get gold spinners for the van that's what if i found that bag of drug money and the right thing to do is to turn it in the first thing i would buy is gold wheels for the van because i would use that money only for essential items, right? I would not be frivolous with that. I would buy the gold wheels and get it over with because the gold wheels make the van faster. I'm not sure if you know that, but wheels that spin give you about 20 miles an hour on the top end. They give you about a hundred more horsepower and, um, and street cred, which is invaluable. You can't put a price on that. Okay. Point of the week. Uh, Number one, we got a bunch of points here. I think these are legitimately good. The point number one is about Elena Della Donna, who is the reigning women's WNBA MVP. I know there's a lot of letters there. So Women's National Basketball Association, most valuable player. She is a remarkable basketball player. And this is the kind of uh, person who could start on any team anywhere. This is a wonderful thing. She also suffers from Lyme disease. And she was faced with having to start the women's NBA season and said to the league, look, I have Lyme disease. This is a complicating underlying factor of COVID, and this could make the situation for me a lot worse. And the league, in their infinite wisdom, and this is tied into a whole bunch of things that you're never going to know about or hear about, said, we do not consider Lyme disease to be a disease that would complicate COVID. Now, if this isn't the perfect example of how this disease is treated and the nonsense that surrounds this disease, and I can say this with 100% conviction because I am a sufferer of Lyme disease, I have been since 2014, to say that this would not complicate COVID is one of the dumbest, most inaccurate statements I can possibly imagine. And you have to remember, and I did another film about Lyme disease a couple of weeks ago, and a lot of people have reached out from all over the world, they've also shared their stories. This is the most debilitating thing I ever had happen to me. And it's not just a physical disease, it is a cognitive disease. So the the cognitive side of it is also, in some ways more debilitating than the physical side. Because when your brain isn't functioning right, and someone wrote me and said they couldn't remember their name, they didn't know how to count, they ended up in a psych ward because the Lyme had been so impactful on their brain, this is way more common than you think. So for the league to say that, is tied into the pharma industry, the insurance industry, and the American Medical Association and organizations like that who cannot allow the American population to know how significant, severe, and widespread this disease is because it goes against all of their marketing. It goes against all of their messaging in regards to the disease where they tell people it's rare, easily treatable, and non-dangerous. They're still sticking to the idea that there's 30,000 new cases a year in America. You could easily add another zero. In my opinion is you could probably add two. I think that there's probably closer to 3 million new cases a year than 30,000. It is so incredibly misdiagnosed and common, and pretty much everyone that wrote in, about my film said, "Oh yeah, it took me 35 years to get diagnosed. It took me 5 years. It took 24 years. It took 4 years." It goes on and on and on. For these idiots in the NBA, and it just it to me the WNBA, it just turns me off to the entire organization because you realize that corruption in America and really corruption worldwide because, you know, take a look at FIFA if you want to see corruption in sport in general, is so rampant. And again, all these people will do and say anything that makes a buck for the organization. And so they're putting her life at risk. And it's just, it really struck a nerve with me because, you know, and this is a woman, someone told me they read an article about her where she took 64 pills a day to try to combat this Lyme. I don't know if that's true or not. Someone else wrote that to me and said, she's 64 pills a day. That's a lot. That's more than even I took, but I was also taking three antibiotics twice a day for two years, which if you think about that, what that did to my body, it's, it's not pretty. Okay, moving on. I've got a bone to pick with Leica and Fuji, camera companies. Um, I, hit the, I hit the breaking point, right? I, to, be, to be 100% direct, I don't really pay attention— to what's happening with the camera companies. I don't because I have a camera that works. I don't have a lot of time to shoot my own projects anymore. My film cameras still work fine if I want to do those. And the, the Fuji X-T2 works fine. I'm sure I could find a use for the X-T4, the one that has image stabilization. But I've gotten away with not having it so far. I know Sony has a new little image-stabilized handheld thing that might work. I also thought about getting a Panasonic or the Lumix, whatever it is, the GH5. I thought maybe that's a way to go. I don't know. I, you know, I can get away with it for the most part, but I could certainly use something that had image stabilization that was small because I'm in the field all the time. And so I saw another, so one of these camera companies came out with a new camera and they are giving it to, the, to people who really have no right to walk around with this camera. They just don't know what they're doing. If, if you are a documentary or reportage photographer and let's take Leica for example, the Leica camera, especially the rangefinder series, that camera is tailor-made for someone like me. I'm not, I'm, not a, I'm not saying Leica should give me a camera. I'm just saying that the kind of photography that I do, which is reality-based reportage, where I'm not orchestrating, I'm in the field, I hate the term fly on the wall, but you know, in essence, you're, you're blending into a scene with the people that you're photographing, and you are reacting in real time to the ingredients in front of you, and you have to be really good to do this work, and I'm not saying I'm really good, there's plenty of other people that are. Leica comes out with this camera and I see two people they've given it to who have absolutely no idea what they're doing. They're like, one's like walking around a garden, another guy's like walking around some city somewhere shooting random pictures that are just not good. And I'm looking at it thinking, yeah, okay, there's a million people that watch this guy's thing, this channel, but nobody's get, none of these people are gonna buy this camera. It's too expensive. If you're gonna, t- if, if, and it, what it does is it detracts from the brand because now I look at Leica, and I look at them as an accessory. They're not a camera company. They're an accessory company. They're selling high-end accessories. You might as well buy a Gucci bag or whatever, uh, but, you know, whatever the high-end handbag is. That's what Leica is presenting itself as. And maybe that's what's keeping them alive. I don't know. I certainly don't know many working photographers, especially in the reportage area area, that can afford a camera like that. It's just insanely expensive. And the other company that does this all the time is Fuji. Fuji gives cameras to the wrong people. They just don't know what they're doing, and they give. you see them demo, hey, the new camera came out, and I'm going to walk around some street in the middle of a city somewhere and take random pictures of strangers and then tell you if this camera is good or not. And I'm like, the pandering has reached a level where I'm losing respect for all of these companies. The company that I see right now doing a better job than anyone else is Sony. Sony is killing it. Sony, the ad I saw yesterday from Sony was, we are equipping every single associated press photographer with the same camera system. That got my attention. Because I was a stringer for AP way back in the day, Um, I got clubbed for the first time in Houston, Texas, by the way, by the Houston Police Department. I got clubbed in the head for the first time, stringing for AP. Got my first picture on the wire. That was 1992 in Houston in the, quote, designated protest area that the police decided to come in and crack heads. And I have pictures of it all. So for those of you skeptical that that was happening, now, I thought it was great. I I didn't even care I got clubbed in the head. I was excited more than anything else because I was actually getting to work as a photojournalist. And I had a press pass around my neck that was the size of a dinner plate. And uh, somehow they missed that when they were going for Uncle Dano's skull. Um, Luckily, I have a thick skull and a tiny brain. So it worked out really well. The point is, it bothers me that these companies pander to this degree because the reality is none of these people. No, I can't say none because Fuji sponsors good people. And I'm sure Leica sponsors good people as well, I don't know particularly who they are because I'm not following that brand at all because I could never pay seven grand for a camera body. I just would never do that when they're disposable because a year later, there's going to be another one and you're going to be like, oh my God, why did I pay this much for this camera? Again, Sony's killing it. They're making smart decisions with who they sponsor. And also I saw a television ad from Sony that was about like pros and it was pros in the field and photographs. And and my wife was there and I was like, look, that's like a real photography ad from from high end professionals who are using this system, and then I see this Leica guy wandering around a garden taking pictures, and I'm thinking, good grief! Because if you're a doc photographer and you look at whatever new camera Leica has, does it have a shutter lag? What's the viewfinder? Um, how does it handle you know super contrasty bright sunlight? How does it you know? It does this thing work in real time in the field? How are the files? What's the low light? What's the noise level? Etc., not here's a picture in a garden, right? So, man, I wish I could just reach out and get five minutes with the marketing departments who would never give me the time of day and they would not care about me. Okay, so point number three I think is really interesting. There was an article in GQ Magazine uh, about the Outdoor clothing brands, Patagonia and Arc'teryx, which are two big powerhouse outdoor brands. I think Patagonia was like a $1.4 billion a year company. Arc'teryx is massive. And the gist of the article was, do these companies need to pander to the police? Okay, now get this. This has been, government contracts for outdoor companies have been around for a long, long, long time. That is a huge part of their portfolio. That is a huge part of their business. The military, police, first responders, etc. cetera. Patagonia cells, Arcteric cells, um, and these are called tactical brands. Now, there's civilian sides of the brands, and there's tactical sides, et cetera, et cetera. I look at this, and I'm like, yeah, makes sense. Government contracts for huge numbers of businesses are, are an integral part of their existence. The writer takes the tact of, why are they doing this? Why are they catering to these, these forces? And then why is it so hidden? So Arc'teryx, has, their tactical brand is called LEAF, L-E-A-F, all caps. You've seen super famous rappers at fashion shows wearing this stuff. And, and Patagonia has a brand called Lost Arrow, which is their tactical side. That's their military side. Of all the Patagonia shops I've been in, and I like Patagonia. I think they do amazing stuff. I have their duffels. I have their clothes. I know someone who's an ambassador of theirs. I watch their films. I like everything about Patagonia. But I went into of all the Patagonia shops I've been in, I saw one little plaque in the back of one store, hidden behind a clothing rack, that that mentioned Lost Arrow. And the authors, the art, the person who wrote the article, referenced like, why is it so hidden? Why is there nothing on the site? Why is it like this and that? Well, I think it's pretty obvious. But my point is, what's the problem? And I why why would it be a problem to equip special operations forces with your outdoor gear? Because here's my two questions that the author did not seem to address. And my, my first thought to the author was, what planet are you living on? And my father had an expression that he drummed into my brother and sister and I, into our heads, probably more than any other expression. He loved saying it. We knew it was coming. It was nails on a chalkboard. We would just love to have told him to shut up, but then he would have killed us. So we, you know, kept our, kept our tongues, but we, he would say, ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Every time he'd see somebody that was like a, quote, do-gooder or some program, my father would look and say, someone's paying for it. Someone has to pay for it. This isn't magic. This is a capitalistic society. People are paying for it. And so to look at a brand and say, oh, you're like Snow White. No, it's not. That's not how brands work. You, there's a manufacturing process. There's transportation. They're burning jet fuel. They could be hiring people in factories. There's all kinds of unsavory aspects. But to me, it's about the balance. What, are, are you taking the steps to be the best you can possibly be? I look at a company like Patagonia or Arc'teryx or any other tactical brand. And by the way, on a daily or weekly basis, I use a combination of 22 tactical brands. I use Garmin, Gulp. Goal Zero, GoPro, Solomon, Camelback, Beyond, Patagonia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These are tactical brands. They may not be known that on the surface, but they have the government, military, police contracting side. I have no problem with that because of two things. The first point is, imagine what the revenue from the tactical side allows them to do on the non-tactical side. If you've got a big government contract and you're supplying clothing and those government contracts, I don't really know anything about them. I've never been involved in anything like that, but I'm assuming that they are like most government contracts. They are very profitable. What do you do with that money? And I can tell you, not that I'm involved in these companies or have meetings with these companies, but they're doing really good stuff. You know, they're developing, they're do, they're sponsoring, they're doing environmental initiatives, they're doing all of this. If part of that revenue comes from the military side or the police side or the fire department side, I don't understand the problem with that. That just seems to me like someone who's aiming at making this purified world that doesn't exist. And this the second part to me that's interesting is if I was a clothing designer in the outdoor space and I looked at something like mountaineering, okay? Mountaineering Mount Everest has not really changed a whole lot, right? In our, in the human since humans have been on the planet, It's the same height it was. You know, it's grown, obviously, if you go back enough millions of years, obviously, before it formed, et cetera. But let's say the modern era, let's say in the last hundred years, Everest has not really changed a whole lot. You know it's cold, you know it's high, you know it's dry, you have violent storms, et cetera. If you're a clothing designer and you're prepping for Everest, there's a pretty well-worn street for what you're going to develop and design, right? Because every clothing manufacturer that's a serious outdoor brand, North Face, Patagonia, et cetera, they're making mountaineering stuff. But if I think about a special operations soldier who might end up in, let's say, the jungle in South America, and then next month they're in Scandinavia, and then the next month they're in the Arctic or the Antarctic, and then they're in a desert in the Middle East or they're in a desert in South America, who knows? You know, America deploys special operations forces to like 75 countries as we speak, so they're all over the world. In terms of a case study— I can't imagine a more difficult problem to solve as a clothing designer than a special operations or a military person. I'm sure fire department too. Like they're, you know, who's around that kind of temperature. I don't know, people who work in the in manufacturing like steel probably, miners potentially. It's a great case study. So you have probably the hardest equation to solve with a human then you have the money from the government that that you, that you can then use on your civilian side for whatever it is you want. The article to me was like one astounding that no one knew this was happening, you know that these brands are selling to the military and the police. Two that, that's like you're just not paying attention. And then two to think like to take a shot and say why are these like not as pr- you know promoted, why is it hard to find? I think that's pretty obvious because you know the public may take a right turn and say, "Well, hey, we don't like this." I don't know. It just is a weird scenario to me that I think A lot of us are trying to envision a world that we want to live in, which I think is a wonderful thing to do. We have to envision the world, we visualize it, and then we try to take steps to move forward. But then there's the reality of the world that we live in, like my postal situation right now. Like, not cool. And I was mad for about 30 seconds, and then I thought, whatever, I'll figure it out, I'll get the packages back, I'll have to repackage them, maybe I have to use a different service, whatever, I'll get them out, people are happy. The response to the packages so far, by the way... I got two emails yesterday from two really good photographers, um, that I had hand delivered the boxes to, and they wrote me and said, this is really cool. This is the, the, Zoe, the designer gets a lot of comments about how good the design is. People are saying, I miss ink on paper. This is such a great thing. I love the bag that the zine comes in. I can keep whatever supplies in it, you know, thank you. Thank you. So anyway, let's move on. Next point. Um, Ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Just remember that. Okay, point number four. I heard a comedian doing this awesome uh, little segment on Texas and how horrible Texas was, right? And I lived in Texas for 25 years, so I know exactly what it's like, and I loved it. I thought this comedian was hilarious. And then right at the end of the, the skit, he's like, yeah, and it's still way better than Florida. And he just goes off on Florida and just how awful Florida is. And a couple of days ago, we had this whole uh, blow up in the Congress with um, Representative Yoho from Florida. I mean, what a tool this guy is. And I started to think to myself, first of all, he's gutless, right? For anybody to say that to a a woman, any woman, anywhere at any time, is just incomprehensible. And then to not have the nuts to, to come up and apologize, to not have the guts to say, yep, you know what, I was wrong. He got up and made, and I listened to it. It's some just gutless uh little talk about he didn't want to apologize he's an idiot and i thought to myself look at florida politically rick scott oi a zero out of ten marco rubio oi zero out of ten matt gates zero out of ten desantis the governor zero out of ten yoho zero out of ten that is potentially the worst political lineup I've seen anywhere. Not even in America. I'm talking. Looking around, I'm looking at these people. What they what they've said and done over the last month alone is just un- incomprehensible. I feel bad for, for Floridians, um, and I know that Floridians are not looking for my pity. Uh, some of them are, but the you know the far right in Florida is, is alive and well. But I just look at these guys and think, man, what a drag. Um, On the flip side, not sure if you saw this or heard this, but the governor here in New Mexico does not mess around, and she doesn't take grief from anybody, especially a clown like the president. So she's been very vocal as of late about just telling him to stay away from here. They're going to put federal troops—I'm going to talk about this in a minute. They're going to put troops in Albuquerque, and man, you better be ready because that is not your typical city, and um, nobody wants them here but i'll get to that in a minute but anyway florida i feel for you i used to go there as a kid i had my terry cloth thing and oh by the way florida my father was wearing a speedo a hundred percent of the time in florida a hundred percent grocery store restaurant hotel terry cloth unzipped scar 40 pounds overweight speedo speedo I'm telling you, it is etched into my brain. If I went to therapy ever in my life, this is the only topic I would ever have to hit. That is the core of everything that's ever gone wrong in my life. Okay, point number five. Congratulations to Ford Motor Company for reinventing, redesigning, and relaunching the Ford Bronco, which looks and it's hard to say. This is uh, it's hard for me to say this because it's so rare that this happens. Most of the automotive veal, field now, especially when it comes to four wheel drives, they half ass everything. Everything is tamed down for the suburbanite, for the commuter. Very rarely, Jeep is a brand that still makes some truly amazing off road vehicles. Toyota, kind of with the Land Cruiser, but they're so expensive that they've priced themselves out of any normal person being able to afford a Land Cruiser. I have a huge personal. Uh, you know, personal connection to the Land Cruiser. I had a 1983 four-speed four-door FJ60 Land Cruiser for years. I loved it. My dad had an FJ40, arguably the best uh, the best four-wheel drive ever made. And oh, by the way, let me go. Let me combine these two points. Toyota as a brand. Okay, let's go back to the article in GQ about Patagonia and Arcteryx, where they're sort of taking shots at these companies for for working with military contracts and and civilian police and fire department contracts. I love Toyota. I think Toyota is an unbelievable brand. I think that the Toyota Land Cruiser, again, arguably the best four-wheel drive ever made. What vehicle does every unsavory terrorist organization in the world drive? What's the one vehicle they all want? They either want Land Cruisers or they want Hilux. And Hilux is the version of the pickup that they sell everywhere in the world outside of North America, It's the version that's a million times better than the North American version, but they won't give it to us because the three major American brands have argued the U.S. government, please do not let them bring this in here because if they do, they'll kill us. The Hilux is a a very basic vehicle in comparison to the ones they sell here in North America, but they're built a little better and they have diesel engines, etc. They are indestructible. Literally, they are indestructible vehicles. You don't think Toyota knows that these are being used in every war zone in the world? Of course, right? Are they not going to sell vehicles? Sure, they're not selling directly to the organizations, but they know where these vehicles are going to end up. So again, we don't live in a a fantasy world. We live in a world of capitalism, and capitalism has a savory side and it has an unsavory side. But Ford released the Bronco. There's three versions of it. They all three look fantastic. And it's so rare I can say this because, again, most of the time when it comes to off-road vehicles, they're tamed, right? They're built for people who drive around the suburbs. It's the Orange County, you know, soccer mom that drives around getting coffee and going to yoga and is driving a Land Rover with the front axle breather on it. And you're like, this truck's never seen a dirt road, let alone had water over the hood. And so most of the time, Ford did not do this. Ford came out with three of potentially the most off-road capable vehicles ever made. And I was astounded. Not that I'm, I have any interest in getting one of these. If someone gave me one, sure. But I'm not. I'm happy with my van. It's a two-by-two. Two. You know, I'm going to put, like, Grateful Dead stickers on it. And I'm going to get a hacky sack and drive around the mountains, right? And had, drink, like, micro-brew super yeasty hoppy beers. That's what I, my plan is. But I just want to say congratulations to Ford. Uh, point number six was uh, an update on AG23 shipping, uh, which I guess I can eliminate now because it's been entirely screwed up. Okay. I had a question. Point number seven talks about system failure. And I thought about this the other day. I look at America right now, and we're sort of seeing failure at a system-wide level. So you have, it, you have systems like information, education, politics, religion, environment, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I, thought to, I had a list of seven of these. And I thought, okay, if I was going to remedy America, what system would I fix first? Oh, that was my wife. Sorry, I was interrupted there. I don't know where I was. Um, Oh, we're talking about system failure, but my wife called. She's at the post office, and yeah, what a cluster that is. They opened up one of my packages. They said I couldn't even put a thank you note inside, and so they saw the thank you note. They put a giant red marker across all of my packaging so I can't reuse it. Um, typical post office uh, sort of BS. But anyway, I'm going to re I'm going to resend it with them at a cheaper rate. It just is crazy to me that. um, And again, if I hadn't gone in and done it ahead of time, it wouldn't be so bad. But now it's it's bad. So anyway, I'm seeing system failure, right? And I thought to myself, and this is a this is a trivia question for all of you. My first thought was, I would solve the system failure in this order. I think you have to solve the information system failure first, which is media, news, information, because, and that's internet, that's social media, because clearly we are being misinformed from every direction all day long. That is why we've lost track of math, science, truth, and fact. We have people that are just inventing narratives. If you don't fix that first, then how can you fix education? So if your information heading into, in, into education is flawed and fake and whatever and manufactured and it, you, know, you have one – just nonsense. We all know how bad the information is, especially on things like Facebook, and a huge percentage of Americans get their news there. There's no fact-checking. We know that Facebook is completely uh, off the rails in terms of, of trying to do the right thing. And then you have education, and then you have politics. And, you have, and then I thought to myself, well, okay, I, I could put these seven in order, but I could argue that any of the seven could be at the front. What about environment? Let's, let's take a look at our environment. If we don't fix our environment first, then what's the point of doing all the other things? If we're heading towards the abyss environmentally, clean water, rising temperatures, crops in danger, food supply in danger— then what's the point of fixing your education system if your environment's going to go down the tubes and we're all going to die? So my question to you is, and I, for some reason, don't have the list of systems. I had uh, info, education, and politics, but there's also environment, and then you you can throw in law enforcement. You could do all kinds of stuff. I honestly don't know what system to fix first. They're all interconnected. So what would you fix first? I have information, I think, and maybe that's because I studied journalism and I still believe in good journalism because I'm naive, but I I believe in good journalism and I believe in something called fact and truth and like a journalist going out and telling a story and not having some political bent, whether it's the left bent or the right bent or the libertarian bent and, and just basically going out and writing stories that try to solidify my own point of view. I actually believe that there are people that are doing fair and honest reporting that are telling stories to the best of their ability. Not that those stories might be palatable to the public, but they're trying. And so I would fix information first. What would you fix? Okay, point number eight. I gotta talk about Trent Park again. I did a video a couple of days ago about 10 words and 10 photographers, People that I uh, words that I associate with great photographers, and then a photographer to illustrate each one of those or, or exemplify each one of those words. And my word for, I had a word location, and Trent Park is an Australian-based photographer who spends most of his time in Australia, and he talks about that in particular of being Australian. It's his country. And the reason I'm bringing him up is he's the only person I see that makes me want to be a photographer again. Not that I'm ever going to do that. I think it would be career suicide at this point, especially now. I don't know how a lot of photographers are going to make it through COVID. I honestly don't know. I think there were a lot of photographers, especially in the online space, who were pretending to be photographers who really weren't. And now it's not—it's hard to pretend anymore because you can't leave and we're still in quarantine and potentially we're going back into a lockdown. I hope we go back into a lockdown. But I saw Trent, a couple of films about Trent Park, which I'd seen, most of them I'd seen before. These are short clips on YouTube. But I was like, He makes me want to be a photographer again, and I can't think of a higher compliment to someone than to be able to say to them, wow, you're inspiring me to make me like question everything, and wow, could I go back and be a photographer again? It took me about a second and a half to figure that out, and the answer was no. One, I'm not nearly as good as he is. Two, he's been doing this for a long time, but what I love is that he started as a newspaper photographer, and newspaper photographers, especially here in America, I don't know what it's like the rest of the world, they would never get respect. Uh, if you are in a circle of photographers at a festival and it's fashion, advertising, commercial, automotive, documentary, photojournalism, whatever, and you say, oh, I work for the, you know, such and such a newspaper, there's, the respect level is not very high. And that is a shame because it is one of the most challenging ways of working as a photographer that you can possibly imagine. And many of those other photographers from those other genres would not last five minutes as a newspaper photographer. They're just not good enough they don't you know reality based imagery is is a very different thing from shooting commercial and advertising constructing images portraiture fashion etc news is wild card every day all day long is a wild card it is completely unpredictable your skills have to be very 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 good to get there and trent park started as a newspaper photographer then became sort of what I would call long-term doc photographer, then got associated with Magnum. He's the only Australian full-fledged member of Magnum. And now he's transitioned again into what I would consider to be a fine art photographer that happens to work with reality-based imagery, although his work is shifting and changing and things like that. But it's pretty inspiring. And when I see him, I'm like, it gives me hope for photography when I see someone like that. Uh, I wish I saw a lot more people like that. But if you hear him speak about his work, that in itself is is refreshing. To hear someone have the ability to encapsulate and explain what they're doing and who they are and why they're doing it, it's very, very rare. And uh, it's hilarious to me that, like, the online space photographers don't know who he is. They actually probably don't know many of the people on the list that I gave. But that's okay. I mean they'll they'll creep their way uh, they'll creep their way in that direction. Okay, I gotta, I gotta bring up my. I've talked about my dad, right? My dad and his Speedo problem. And, uh, but I wanna talk about propaganda just very quickly and something that happened with my mother. So, my mom is older and she, I would not say, is a very well connected person. She does not spend much time online. Uh, she does not use the phone very well. And she has basically, you know, her news is limited. She lives in Texas. And I want to talk about propaganda because propaganda for Americans is something that you reserve for countries like Russia and China. We're famous for look, pointing the finger at other countries, Venezuela, Mexico, Russia, China, etc. Oh, look at those people. Oh, look at that propaganda, blah, blah, blah. But we do the same thing and we always have. We just don't like to say that because like, we're supposed to be the, the good people, right? So I'm in conver- I talk to my mom every day. And we talk about all kinds of stuff. We talk about childhood. We talk about food. We talk about locations, weather, you know, the typical stuff that you talk about with your, with your parents. And so my mom asks me pretty much every single day why the pandemic is so bad. And so she's a lifelong Republican. My father was very much a Republican. He was He got more and more radicalized. The older he got, it really started to impact his quality of life. He was a conspiracy theorist. Towards the end, You know, his homepage, uh, his bookmarks on the computer were all right-wing propaganda sites. And I, we would talk about it. And I would say, do you not understand or do you understand that what you're looking at is propaganda and not news? And he never really was able to differentiate. He let it color his view of the world. He wouldn't travel to states and cities that he felt were too quote liberal and that trickled down to my mother. My mother was never one to go educate herself about issues. She really doesn't have any understanding of how the government works and she basically is a Republican because my father was a Republican. And so I was talking to her, you know, over the last week or so, every single day, and where she says every single day, same thing. Why is the pandemic bad? I'm like, well, because we dropped the ball, we radicalized it, we turned it into a political issue, not a health issue, blah, blah. It's the same. And and so now I just say to her mom, it's the same reason we talked about yesterday. And she's like, well, how do we fix it? And I said, we have to get rid of this administration and we have to get somebody in that's, you know, science-based people in there to start fighting this immediately. It's, we, we have to get this idiot out of office. And then move on, and even that's not going to solve it, but like that's, that's something we have to do, we, because he's getting up in front of a podium and did for whatever, how many months, saying, this is no big deal, it's a hoax, it's going to magically disappear, inject yourself with household cleaner, it goes on and on. But in the back of her head, she will not believe any of this, because she thinks that he's a Republican, and so... That's another story that's impossible to get across to her, that he never was, and that he ran on the party because he knew he could take over the party, which he did, blah, blah, blah. She doesn't know any about this. But she said two things in the past week that were unbelievable to me, which shows the power of the media in Texas, especially local media. So she typically watches one channel in particular out of, out of a major city in Texas. I've watched the news with her 100 times, and it's terrible. Like most local news is pretty bad these days, on television anyway. So we're talking last week, and she asked me that same question. What's the problem with the pandemic? What do we got to do? And I'm talking, I'm like, well, we got to get a new administration. We need to get back to science. We've got to make a plan. We've got to lock down. We've got to get the governors that are telling people to open up and not wear masks. We got to control this. And out of the blue, she says, maybe we should talk about Joe Biden's son. And I just froze. I said, What did you say? And as soon as I said, What did you say? And I'm I'm FaceTiming, I can see her. I see the panic in her eyes. And she goes, Never mind, never mind, I don't want to talk about it. And I said, Where did you hear that? And so she gets really squirrely and goes sideways and doesn't want to tell me where she heard it. And I said to her or ask her, Why would Joe Biden's son have relevance to anything? He's not a politician, he's not running for office. His father's the one running for office. What does this have to do with anything? She could not answer, had absolutely nothing. But to me, I said to her, I go, mom, you're, you're in the propaganda cycle. You are in a town, a city that is feeding you this because the governor of Texas has a direct connection to the, to the Trump. You know, obviously the Republican governors are working for the Republican party. Makes sense. So today she said something else. So we're talking and she's like, oh my God, it's a mess. Oh my God, it's bad. The hospitals are full. People are dying. You know, what's happening? Blah, blah, blah. The same question comes up, and she goes, well, I guess that's what you get when the Democrats are in control. And again, I said, what did you say? And the second I said that, she like, you know, her eyes start spinning around, and she goes, like, well, you know, that's what happens when the Democrats are in control. They're making the virus, you know, they made the virus situation what it is. All the violence that's happening in America is on the Democrats, and I'm thinking to myself, this is how propaganda works. This is why things like right-wing radio, like Rush and Beck and Hannity and all those guys, it's the only radio stations you can hear driving across the guts of the country. There is no other programming. And 97% of Americans are reached by radio. And right-wing radio, they're, they've got their act together, man. They're super smart. They're organized. They're all on message all across the country every day, all day long. And the local news is just bought and paid for, so they're going to show these stories. And so my mom is sitting there watching this, and she doesn't know. You know, she's not going to go online and be able to triangulate information for a story. She's just susceptible to what's being delivered to her. And it's, it's so disappointing to me because we are leaving on the table who we could be as a nation, and we've decided to just give it away to these—and let's face it. Is there anyone in the political spectrum? Is there a party in America, Democrat, Republican, Libertarian? Is there any party worth us giving our lives to them? No. I mean, look at the history. That's the problem. We have very, very detailed, recorded history of both parties. And the fact that we only have two parties is another weakness in itself. Why don't we have a half a dozen parties? And then people get elected and have to work together. No, we've decided to like just draw this arbitrary line in the sand at two. And then watch as the parties get radicalized and get further and further and further apart and do more and more damage. But the propaganda cycle, we cannot look at the rest of the world and point the finger because we're doing it, and it's happening. And I'm literally giving you examples of hearing it in real time, and it's sad because my mom was a—and my mom's awesome—but my mom was a total badass. I have pictures of my mom gutting a deer— her nickname is Annie Oakley. She taught me how to hunt and fish when I was a kid. She was super smart, she was super active, she was adventurous. Um, everybody really liked my mom. She was amazing. Everybody still likes my mom, but she's you know her her cycle her circle has gotten much smaller because again, she's a little bit more isolated. The information highway has not really caught up to her. And so she's just a victim of the propaganda that's around. And, if it, and it's not just her, obviously. It's millions of Americans. And that's the information system that I'm talking about. That's why I think we have to change that first. Okay, very quick. You know my feelings on social media. Uh, I've been seeing this a lot lately, which is these—on social media, people talking about starting new positions— And they, they all, it's the phoniest thing in the world, right? They go, oh, I'm so thrilled to be starting at such and such a position and I'm just happy and whatever. And you know, it's fake because not every job is good, right? I was a hot tub installer in high school in Texas in the summer, not a good job. My recommendation, if you can avoid that job, avoid it. It sucks. It's not good. I would never want to do it again. I knew within a week, I was like, okay, this is not going to be my career, Would I have gone on social media and said, thrilled to start working at such and such hot tub installation place? Hey, I got to run a jackhammer in 105 degrees, and oh, by the way, the client wouldn't pay for the compressor jackhammer. I had to use the one that plugs into the wall with an outlet that barely works, and the bit would get stuck, and then I'd have to pull the jackhammer off and take a hammer and try to jar the bit loose for eight hours a day. Right, it was like prison chain gang work. That's not good. And so it's such BS. I would love for people to be honest and say something along the lines of, good grief, I can't believe I have to take this shit job, uh, but I'm stuck. Thanks. That would be amazing on social media. And by the way, it would trend far more than the nonsense. Okay, let's move on. Van life. You know me. I'm driving a van now, which means everything in my life is phony. I'm going to paint a picture of idyllic paradise with my bikini-clad girlfriend driving around warm locations, eating vegan food, and all the nonsense that comes with van life. I love the fact that so many of the van life people have been outed for being phonies. I think that's hilarious. It points to another you know, what social and and platforms like YouTube have done to our culture and society. I'm just a guy who drives a van. It's a metal box. It is the most basic thing you have ever seen. It is a tall, awkward metal box. That's it. There's nothing sexy about my van. The inside of the van is kind of cool with the Wayfarer kit. It would take me 12 years to build what they did and install it. I would screw it up for sure. But I've got a big decision to make because the van came with street tires. Right. And I live in New Mexico. Two thirds of the state's unpaved. I find myself going to trailheads, down dirt roads, et cetera. I've got to make some tire changes. I have had BF Goodrich KO2s on every vehicle truck I've ever had in my life, going back to 1985. <clears throat> my Chevy S10 4x4 Blazer, the mini Blazer that fell apart at 30,000 miles. Thank you very much, Chevrolet. I had, the mini, I had the Mini Blazer. I had the uh, Land Cruiser. I've had my Tacoma. Our family has had a gazillion. We've had multiple Land Cruisers, many Toyota trucks. Uh, we've had Chevy trucks. We've had Dodge trucks. We've had Ford trucks going way back to the 1960s. We've had Jeep Wagoneers. We have whatever. I always had BF Goodrich KO2s. I think that's what I'm going to put on the van. And if you don't know the BF Goodrich KO2, if you're out there and you're like, why the hell is he talking about tires? Who cares? I love tires. And the BF Goodrich KO2 is their all-terrain <clears throat> tire. It's it's famous. It's They call it now, all the hipster kids are calling it like your dad's tire because they, of course, could never use anything that's been around. They have to look for like new brands. But I was thinking KO2, General Grabber, which looks ex- almost exactly like the KO2, uh, Cooper all-terrain AT3s. That's another tire I was looking at. And I'm thinking I'm gonna go with BF Goodrich KO2s because again I've had them on every every vehicle and it, I need that traction for dirt roads and for the snow in particular as well out here because uh, the street tires this winter and the snow I just I couldn't even get out of the driveway. Um, I'm also gonna put a roof rack on the van, and I need to go up to Colorado to do this. I think I don't think there's an install place here. And a friend of mine was like, oh, "This is hilarious." A friend of mine goes, "Well, why don't you just do it yourself?" And I go, "Dude, it's a van." First of all, it's nine feet off the ground, and it's the entire length of the van. How am I going to do that? And he goes, oh, just get a rope, tie it on a tree, like pull it up the side. And I go, yeah, break the window, scratch the van, break my arm, fall off the ladder, all that kind of stuff. So I'll probably have it installed. I'm going to do a low-profile double-ring roof rack that has a platform on top that I can stand on and shoot and film from. And then also use it for storage. Uh, I would love to be able to have my roof box, my old Thule roof box attached to the top because I already own the Thule. Um, but I have not seen one attached to a roof rack like that without adding crossbars. And I do not want to do that because then it sticks up way too high. And also thanks to my friend Sean for hooking me up with a fridge uh, for, the, for the van which runs off the solar generator. I have a fridge and freezer now which I did not think would be a huge thing for the van, and it is. It already is. I haven't even used it yet, and I can tell you with 100% certainty, it beats the hell out of a cooler. Thank you. Okay, moving on. We lost a really amazing journalist two weeks ago. Christopher Dickey uh, was a writer. I knew him primarily as a writer for Newsweek magazine, and Christopher Dickey was, a, a, was a, an honest-to-God, badass journalist. And he had been writing books and articles for a long, long time. And there's two, if you don't know Christopher Dickey, he's worth looking up. Now he and I used to email uh, back in the day. And I was, I was, I admired him because I read two of his books. One's called Expats, and what is one is called With the Contras, which is about the war in Nicaragua. And after I read those books, I reached out to him and said, you know, hey, I'm a photojournalist. I really liked your work. The wars in Latin America in the 80s were very influential in me becoming a photographer. And he wrote back, and he was professional, and we had a really interesting little dialogue. It didn't last all that long, but we had this really interesting dialogue, and he died. He was 68 years old, I think, or 64 or 68, which is way too young, and it really bummed me out because when we talk about the information failure the information system failure in America, these are the kind of people that were the ones carrying the torch for what was real. And if you read expats or you read with the Contras, you know, this is a person who's in the field, right? He's not sitting in a screen in Washington, D.C., like banging out through multiple sources for an online article that if it's wrong, it's no big deal because nobody's going to run a correction anyway. And even if they did, no one would see it. This was real journalism. This was having to vet, to fact check, to run articles and say, we're not running this unless we know that it's right. And so it's a bummer. And if you don't know of him, look up those two books, "Expats" and "With the Contras," and they're definitely worth reading. Uh, point number thirteen, very quickly, is Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Her cancer is back, and that is not good. Not only for her, because she's a little, you know, a little mighty, you know, mighty woman who's been around for a long time, incredibly significant in the history of the U.S. And when she goes, they're going to try to replace her with uh, probably as right and as radical a judge as they can possibly get through. I think the only hope that we have is if the Dems go on vacation and literally physically leave town so they can't have a quorum and they can't try to get this through uh, before the election, because that's the primary goal. You know, and Trump has been really good at this. He's been very shrewd about the court system, both Supreme and appellate, and done a really good job of loading it up with people that are behind him. And it's a smart move if you're in his, his shoes. That's um, not a bad move. Okay. Two two last things, and then I'm going to end with a story. I actually have one point and then a story. So there's a lot in the news about the feds in Portland. There's a lot of—now uh, they're going to move troops into Chicago. They're going to move troops into Albuquerque. There's a sheriff in Albuquerque in Bernalillo who's a clown who refuses to put body cameras on his officers. You know, that's not a good sign. My feeling with it, with him is that he will probably in the near future be gone based on some indiscretion. I don't think people like that last very long, especially now when the microscope is on people. Albuquerque has a police department in general— has a long history of violence, right? And so 2014, Albuquerque Police Department settled a lawsuit with the Department of Justice about using a systematic, pervasive uh, system of violence. De- uh, what is it? What do they call it? Um, deadly violence against people that were not a threat. So the Albuquerque Police Department got in a lot of trouble because they used deadly force on a lot of people who did not deserve it. They were indicted by the Justice Department investigation, and in 2014, had a 270-count plan for police reform in Albuquerque. That's that's kind of made some inroads, and I know the governor has come out and tried to get the DOJ to drop a whole bunch of these uh, things that they were supposed to adhere to. But sending troops into Albuquerque is, is idiotic. No one wants them there. They're not needed there. It's not going to make the situation better. You have the same thing happening in Portland. Um, But there's another small story that happened, and all of these are related, but I want to make a tactical point at the end. And when I say tactical, I have no training in this whatsoever, but what I do have is a history of reading about insurgencies around the world. So there was also a situation in Minnesota on a lake, okay? It was a remote lake somewhere, and there was a little section of beach where people would nude sunbathe or topless sunbathe. Right now we live in a in a pseudo, uh, puritanical society in America. We consume more porn, more pornography than any country in the world, but yet we live under this guise that you know we're 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 pure. Like we can't, no one can go topless anywhere, God forbid, or you know some remote lake in the middle of Minnesota where a handful of people want to go nude sunbathe. That's a problem when we have to call in the police, which they did because some puritanical person went in there and complained. And the police, in their infinite wisdom, decide to send a drone. So they're flying a drone over, and they said, oh, we promise that no one will see this, right? Okay, well, that's not good enough, right? That's never going to happen, because if I worked at the police station, the first thing i do is send it to everyone, right? That's what happens. That's what people do. It's, it's natural. It's funny. You're like, here's a bunch of nude people at the lake. We shot it with the drone. Let's make calendars, you know, whatever. And so the police show up, they fly the drone, and lo and behold, the people get pissed and they are now they're agitated and they're riled and the police leave because the crowd gets t- turns on them so that's here's my point the fed sending troops into portland chicago and albuquerque that is a political ploy that's a political tactic to try to help trump that's it there's no other explanation no one wants them there the, go- the governors don't want them there the mayors don't want them there they're not helping the situation. They're violating things like the Constitution, all kinds of stuff. It's just a political ploy. But here's the the even worse part of it: is if you study insurgencies around the world, the reason that insurgencies succeed is that they they begin to bring in people that do not have emotional ties to the to the situation. You bring in people like those people at that lake in Minnesota who all you know it, they're, they they want to go topless at a lake in Minnesota in the middle of the woods, like. Is a bear going to see them? You know, who knows? All of a sudden, those people who might not have been agitated enough to get involved in the conversation until now suddenly go, Hey, you're violating my rights, and now I'm going to clear off my plate, I'm going to clear my schedule, and I'm going to go out of my way to make you pay. That is how insurgencies grow. So sending federal troops in is going to make it worse, especially when you have a defined Geographic area. If you send troops into a defined geographic area, what you are going to do is stir the hornet's nest. And you're going to get a bunch of people who didn't go to the protests who are good. Look, for example, the moms in Portland, a, st- a line of older women linking arm in arm between the federal troops and the protesters. That's not normal. They were sitting at home. Uh, the interviews that I've heard with them are like, I wasn't involved in this. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, wait a minute, federal troops snatching, grabbing people off the streets and unmarked cars. All right, that's it. I'm going down. And it's going to blow up. It's going to backfire on them. And we have, uh, we have years and years and years of history around the world to study this. No one in the Trump administration, I don't think has even thought this through because I think if they did, they're going to, this is going to turn really bad, really fast. And, you know, there's a, justice department watchdog doing an investigation who cares no one cares that's not going to go anywhere it doesn't matter what they find um okay so those are my points for this week i know this is a long one but i think these are pretty good right this is interesting stuff there's all kinds of fascinating stuff happening in the news we got a lot of work to do um so i'm going to tell a quick story about photography and then i'm going to end i flew to cambodia in 1996 And I had met someone in California a couple of weeks before who worked in Cambodia. He said he needed a photographer. I flew over there to do this project for him. Didn't know really much about Cambodia at the time. Although it was very influential, me becoming a photographer, I'd never been there. I didn't know what I was getting into. And there's two little quick things that I think are kind of funny. Flying in there, and the flight into Phnom Penh from Hong Kong is empty. It's the flight crew, me, and like four people, and two of them were UN workers, and there was like an NGO worker and me. And the flight crew is always very curious. They're like, why are you going here? Because the Khmer Rouge were still active in parts of the country. There was no electricity at night in Phnom Penh. There were no streetlights. There was no—a whole lot of infrastructure. The UN mission had left in 92. They had spent more money on the Cambodian mission than all the prior UN missions combined, and they had left the country, and there was a lot of problems still, and there was a lot of problems in the country while they were there, and it was messy. And so in 96, the hotel that we stayed at in Phnom Penh had an armed guard in the lobby with an AK, which I heard him fire one night. Uh, you know, you couldn't go out at night, really, in the city. You had to go out in sort of groups and like really watch yourself in the city. And then other parts of the country were active Khmer Rouge. You could go during the day, but at night you had to sort of hole up and hope that you know they didn't come looking for you. And so I'm flying in there, and I'm nervous because I've never been there, and I barely know this person that I'm going to go work with, and he's sort of filling me in a little bit, and in, I'm trying to read a book on the plane, and I'm in the seat pocket in front of me, I notice there's a Soldier of Fortune magazine, and I'm like, oh God, don't look at it, don't look, don't look at it, and I'm like, I pick it up, and the cover story is under fire in Cambodia, and I'm thinking, oh no. I'm going to get killed. What did I do? Why am I coming here? Et cetera. That was hilarious. And then you get there. He and I go out one night, and we're walking from our hotel to this other place. We're going to a party. Someone at the UN had a party in a house in a neighborhood, and he's like, look, you know, it's pitch black. There's no streetlights, nothing. And so you're kind of walking in the shadows, and there's people here and there, and all of a sudden, I see a guy running at us, and he's coming at an angle, and I'm like, hey, 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 look at that guy. And then all of a sudden, there's a second guy and a third guy, and they're like coming from all angles. And it is clear they are coming for he and I. And so we are running, we're sprinting through like backyards and houses, and these guys are coming at us from all over. And we we literally get to the party house, and we're like, okay, we're fine, we made it. It was like safe zone, and we go to the party. I don't remember how we got home. I think we got a ride from someone. But you know, you had to you had to watch yourself. But after a couple of days, you start to become. Uh, acclimated. And it's not that big of a deal. So a couple of days later, I'm walking along the Sap River, which is in downtown Phnom Penh. I'm right in front of the Foreign Correspondents Club, which is uh, the guy from uh, Killing Fields was in there hanging out all the time. And the photographer, not the journalist. Schomburg was not there. It was the photographer. Anyway, hanging out there, middle of the day, people all over. The days were pretty safe. A kid, a kid walks up with an AK-47 and just picks this thing up, walks up to me, squares himself up to me and just points this thing right in the middle of my chest and goes, give me 1500 real, which was like a dollar. And I was like, no problem. Here you go. Here's It was like Jim Carrey in Dumb and Dumber where the guy pulls the piece of slip of paper out of this briefcase. And it's like $750,000 for a Lamborghini. And Jim Carrey goes, might want to keep that one. It was an IOU. Might want to keep that one. The Kid was like, give me 1500 real. And I was like, no problem. Here it is. And he, you know, lowered the gun and walked away. And it literally was like, my brain went from trying to compose photographs to handing over the money to going right back to composing photographs. And that's when I knew that I loved being a photographer. I knew it because this was like not my first trip out of the country as a photographer, but it was one of the first ones. And I was like, I love this. I love everything about it. And I was, you know, Cambodia was hot in a way that like Panama was hot as well. But there is a certain type of heat that's very unique. The kind of heat that like you're just soaking wet all day long, every day from the time you wake up, no matter how many showers you take, you are just wet until the time you go to sleep at night. It's dusty. It's kind of loud. It was not tamed yet. There was just so much going on as a photographer that I just could not stop. I loved it. And having a gun pointed at me and having money taken literally was like a... It was like putting money in a parking meter. It just didn't register, like, I want to get back to make pictures. And then I made a picture right after that that's in the sort of portfolio I have from Cambodia. So those are funny stories of being a photographer that... um I think about a lot and laugh and am glad that I had them because um, they made me who I am. Okay, so we have a major uh, monsoon rolling in from the southeast. I've got lightning strikes happening all around me. We've got a wind picked up. The temps dropped about 15 degrees from here until so mid-July to end of August, beginning of September, we have monsoon season here in New Mexico, and we're in the middle of it. So we've had rain twice today. This is a magical time to be in this part of the country. Monsoons are remarkable. They come off the Sea of Cortez. They come north and hit cold fronts coming in from the north, and they combine and form these remarkable electric storms, and uh, it's beautiful. So thank you for tuning in. My phone, I'm looking. I have so many email now over the last hour, and I have so many text messages, and my phone software is not updated, and again, all my packages are being returned to me. So in terms of if I had to rate this Friday on a scale of 1 to 10, I'd probably say a 4 which is a bummer but tomorrow's the weekend so time to get time to get crazy thanks for tuning in